So today is Saturday, uh, February 27th. This is the first day of this four-day February-March session 2021. And uh, uh, for this session, I'm going to be going back to a book I've read from before, <clears throat> a few years back. Um, the title is Catching a Feather on a Fan. Uh, it's been compiled by John Crook, and it's, uh, it's talks given by Chan Master Sheng Yen, Chinese uh, Zen master, <clears throat> at a retreat in Wales. And uh, even though I've read it, you know, not that many years ago, uh, I thought this would really be a good text to go back to, uh, considering how many people are doing their first sashin or early in sashins, uh, because it really addresses the fundamental basis of good Zen practice. And uh, I really uh, resonate with Sheng Yen's approach, which I gather is, is pretty common in Chinese Zen. It's a little different from the approach in Japanese Zen, a little more emphasis on uh, relaxation, <clears throat> and maybe a little less emphasis on uh, on seizing Kensho, but uh, <clears throat> it certainly doesn't discount awakening, enlightenment. Um, it's, uh, it's a pretty inspiring book. So I'm going to just uh, start out, sort of introduce uh, his talks by, I think he can do a good job himself, um, and so I'm just going to read a little bit about his arrival there at uh, the farmhouse in Wales where the Sashin took place. <clears throat> and uh, Sheng Yen says, I expect some of you can understand that getting to Wales has been somewhat like undergoing a Chan retreat. For the last three days, we have spent over 50 hours on planes without a proper night's sleep and with a complete uncertainty as to whether we were actually going to arrive. Yet here we are, and I can see you're all ready to begin. Everything is arranged. You have your places marked and your jobs allocated, so we must certainly start at once. And then he goes through all the difficulties that he ran into. Actually, uh, there had been plans for him to come the previous year, but he didn't have a visa. Didn't, they weren't aware that it was needed. And so he couldn't go, and then this trip, they discovered his visa had expired, and uh, they had to get a new one in New York. And that's why it took him over 50 hours on planes without a proper night's sleep to get <clears throat> from Taiwan to, to Wales, to Great Britain. He says, actually, I should tell you that we almost gave up the idea of coming. But then I thought of all the work you have done, John especially. It's John Crook, the leader there, in arranging this event, and I felt that on no account could I let you down. So here I am. This is then a very precious occasion. Despite numerous obstacles, it has come about. I hope each one of you will treasure the opportunity and work hard. So much of our experience in Sashin depends on our valuing the opportunity. Uh, there is a tendency, if you go to a lot of sessions, to <clears throat> get into the been there, done that sort of mind state 
and not realize how uncertain it is that we'll be able to go to the next session. Right now, there's only this. What are we doing if we don't take advantage? He says, you should know that Zen, Chan in Chinese, is not for the purpose of getting instant enlightenment. Rather, the practice itself is the goal. The practice itself is the goal. Most people think that seeing into one's own nature using some method of instant enlightenment is a convenient and speedy path. But this is a severely erroneous understanding. Of course there is enlightenment, but mostly there are false enlightenments. If you are very anxious to get enlightened, you can precipitate a kind of mistaken experience which you call enlightenment, <clears throat> and that can be very sad. Of course, there are different ways of approaching it, and for some people, the thirst for some sort of insight is, is great, and those people may benefit from <clears throat> being pushed a bit, but it really depends on the uh, quality of the teacher and it depends on the student, too, because people whose aim is to have some sort of kensho uh, can often end up slacking off once they achieve that goal. Better not to be so goal-oriented, I think. He says, After so much difficulty in getting here, I have not come to give you enlightenment. That is absurd. Rather, I have come to see whether it is possible to pass on to you the methods whereby you can improve your practice. It's like eating. We cannot expect to be filled by taking one mouthful and munching once or twice. We need to digest a whole meal until we know we have had enough. We are going to use the methods of practice to benefit the body and mind. That is the most important thing. <clears throat> and skipping ahead. Just as we had problems getting to Wales, so too will you encounter obstructions in the practice of your method. These arise from your own mind and body, not from elsewhere. One simply has to persist and continue with practice. Be prepared for struggle. We have six days ahead of us. Of course, we here have just four. And even to recognize the obstructions is in itself the beginning of true practice. In this small house, we are hidden away in the mountains. The moment is auspicious. Now, sit. <clears throat> and then I'm going to move ahead uh, to his... He gave, during this uh, session, it was a little unusual uh, how many talks he gave uh, I think he says later, maybe we'll get to it, that uh, basically he knew he probably wouldn't be able to get to Wales more than this one time, and there were so many people who were new. He really wanted to uh, show everything, to, to lay everything out. And so he gave talks in the morning, he gave uh, uh, what seems to be some sort of a Taisho, and he gave talks in the evening. And uh, we'll just move right through those that seem to be seem to uh, uh, be useful for us, which is most of them. So in this first talk on day one, they're just getting started, just a little bit behind where we are right now. He says, to begin, let us set, set out some basic rules for the retreat. 
no talking. Of course, for some jobs, a few words need to be spoken, especially in arranging the cooking, for example, but apart from such necessary interactions, there should be no conversation whatsoever. Talking about how you are or how you think the retreat is going is of no help to practice. It is just an interference, and it wastes the energy of a focused mind. <clears throat> of course, this is a rule for our sessions as well, and... Uh, during these Zoom sessions, a lot of us are embedded in family, and there is a certain amount of talking that uh, is necessary or wise, uh, depending on how understanding our partners and family may be. And uh, so we do what we need to do, but still the spirit of keeping the mind on the practice and not allowing it to drift off into talking for no purpose or talking just for uh, diversion needs to be you need to keep that in mind <clears throat> secondly he says no noise keep yourselves tidy and quiet of course most of us are muted so that's not a problem <clears throat> and then no thinking for some tasks you need to consider what you are doing or to plan the sequence of your actions but for many jobs thinking is not essential just let the hands do it let the mind be on whatever you are doing. Just do it, don't evaluate it, or compare yourself with others. Put your mind on the job, on the eating, on the toilet. You do not need to judge what you are eating. All you need to do is fill the stomach to have the energy to practice. <clears throat> I like this uh, this rule, no thinking. Uh, it's It's... When I look back on my own practice, and I think this is true for many people, I, I regret that I wasn't more vigilant about letting thoughts creep into the mind. Um, of course, it's difficult not to have that happen because there's such a familiar uh, friend slash enemy. For many people, that's kind of their comfort zone if they if they are thinking, then some tension maybe drops away that they feel when they're trying to practice. But um, if in the end, that kind of thinking is not your friend. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's a way of, of sabotaging your practice. So it just requires vigilance. You don't have to be afraid of your thoughts. You just need to be vigilant not to give them a foothold, not to follow one thought up with another thought. We all know this, of course, but it's, it's the doing it, the practicing it, the repeatedly dropping them is what makes the difference. He goes on, no looking at others. It is of no value to you to see how others are doing or coping with problems. On retreat, to consider how others are is to fill the mind with inessential concerns. It is not your business. No looking about. No listening to pleasing sounds. Keep the senses quiet. If you look around at the scenery, you will start judging it. How beautiful the sunshine. Oh dear, here comes the rain. Likewise with sounds, bird songs, tractors, sheep buying. Treat them all the same. Pay no attention. Of course you will see and hear. But do not intentionally look about or listen evaluatively. The aim is to stop the sources of discrimination. 
In a way, it's just like thoughts. Sounds and sights come into the mind, but if we don't play with them, they're not a problem. <clears throat> and then he says, No analysis of whatever is said in the talks or instructions. If I say something that is helpful to you, fine. If not, forget it. Yeah, watch out for that one. It's it's every now and then, in a one of Roshi's Teishos, I would hear something that was especially on point for me, and there is that tendency to want to think about it. There's no need. Uh, as Roshi Kaplow used to say, it all goes in. It's in the unconscious. Everything you need, there's no need to try to remember it or play with it. Just take it in and keep your your mind open, taking in what comes next. <clears throat> and then he says, maintain your separateness. Each of you is quite independent. Don't pay any attention to whoever is sitting next to you, whether they are complaining or happy. In this world, all you know is yourself. Nobody else. And in fact, you don't know yourself either. The best thing on retreat is to keep the mind a blank, filled only with practice. And finally, be on time. There are plenty of toilets, so there is no need to be late when the bell rings or the boards are struck. Indeed, unless you are sick or there is some special reason, you should always be early and ready to sit on time. <clears throat> This is an admonition that I need to take to heart. Um, I have a habit of doing things at the last minute, and uh, I do work on it, and uh, I, I have to say it's always better to be in my place, on the mat, on the cushion, a little before the sitting begins. You're just that much more settled and ready to go. You know, if things interfere and you can't until the last minute, well, then so be it. But uh, there's really some value in making a habit of getting someplace a little ahead of time. It's a, it's a courtesy to others. It's really thinking of other people. So many times there, when we can arrive late while everyone else has been waiting for us, um, it's unfortunate. It's a life habit. <clears throat> now we're going to move to the evening talk on that first day. I've only been in your country for a day, but already I've learned something about you people. <laughs> you have a love for ancient things. This house is hundreds of years old. You treasure the old worm-eaten beams and the crumbling stone walls, the bent timbers of the old barn. In Taiwan, we are busily engaged in pulling everything down and building up the new. In Chan, we treasure the old while making it always new. So it is appropriate here that I should talk to you about one of the oldest of the Chinese scriptures. I don't know what was happening in Britain in the 6th century. In China, it was the time of the Liang dynasty, 502 to 556, <clears throat> Buddhism was already established and Chan was developing. Yet in those early years, the Chinese did not distinguish too clearly between their own Taoist ideas and those of the new religion. So in this text, 
you will find a number of Taoist ideas which give a particular flavor to the Chan of that period. You could actually say that that flavor still exists in Chan and in Zen. The text is so ancient that we are not sure who wrote it. He is known as Wang Ming, but that may be a pseudonym. His surname was Sung, and he served as a government official. When the dynasty ended, he became a monk and took his vows under a Chan master. His intellectual ability implies that he studied theory with numerous teachers. <clears throat> Wang Ming emphasizes the unification of mind as especially important, and this goes back both to the old Taoist notions and to the Indian idea of bringing the mind to single-pointedness. He calls his poem Calming the Mind, and it is a valuable one for beginners. He describes the method of practice and how to do it. Wang Ming advises us to let go of our anxieties and vexations and to let life unroll naturally. In the poem, mind can be used in two senses. As we shall see, the first usage refers to the worried mind of discrimination, the tense mind that needs to relax. It is, the, is this mind to which the title refers. Yet when the mind becomes relaxed, what is the mind then? This is the second usage, a mind beyond illusion, discrimination, and the need to relax. pointing to the fact that when the mind is deeply concentrated, everything shifts and everything changes. And I thought I would read a little something from a Western Zen teacher, John Tarrant, maybe gives a little more flavor to this. He says, John Tarrant says, there's a gate in the mind and stepping through is like leaving the palace that has come to feel like a prison. On the other side of that gate, silence fills the spaces. Nothing is happening but what's happening. There's no urgency. Nothing more is needed than what's here. In that silence and plainness, things step forward and shine by themselves. Though I enjoy seeing this, I don't make it happen. It's not something that can be controlled. Help is unexpected. It's really an antidote to the sort of doing state of mind, the agenda that we bring to practice. All we have to do is keep it simple. We have koan or the breath, shikantaza. We have a simple, simple practice. And if we can just give ourselves to that, have faith in that, then the silence will open. <clears throat> begin to get a flavor of mind with a capital M. He, <clears throat> he goes on. One of you has remarked how difficult it is to concentrate. Which mind are you trying to concentrate? We must be certain that we speak here of the mind of illusion that needs to become calm in order to see clearly. It is the mind that discriminates 
and then favors one thing more than another and always creates tensions. <clears throat> we could say the mind that wants things to be a certain way. When you try to calm the mind, there are two important principles. We need to be clear about these. The first is to cease worrying, and the second is not to be concerned with knowledge. For your practice to be effective, you don't have to worry, and you don't need to understand intellectually. <clears throat> it's a tough message to take in for those of us who uh, have relied on our intellectuality uh, with, with some success, some worldly success, over the years. But for practice, it's not a help. <clears throat> More often, it's a hindrance. He says, we would like to be able to concentrate fully on our method, be it counting the breath, silent awareness, or working on a koan. Yet the more we try, the less concentration we achieve. Our minds simply do not obey our intentions. We try to stay with the method, but before we know where we are, the mind has drifted away onto something else. Our attitude is wrong somewhere. We feel frustrated and lost. <clears throat> this morning I asked you to leave behind for the moment all those people and events with whom you have been relating. We should stop thinking about the ongoing problems of our lives and relationships. Of course, these things are important, and after the retreat, we shall take up such issues again. But here and now, in the retreat, we should let them go. Keep your distance from the past and the future. What is it that makes this so difficult? Mostly the thoughts that arise are concerned with the past, or perhaps with the future that will arise as a result of the past. This involves discrimination, judgment, comparison, and memory. It provokes an anxious tension that varies in strength according to the topic that comes up and your own disposition. It is vital to practice putting all this down. Just put it down. Leave aside all past, all knowledge. With practice, you can let it go. When you can do this for as long as you wish, you have found a certain freedom. <clears throat> of course, with everyone, uh, there will be, with almost anyone, everyone anyway, there will be situations where, despite your uh, seasoning in practice and your ability to lay things down, something hits so close to home that you can't. And then you've found your point of practice. Um, it's not like... I try to let something down and I can't do it. I'm a failure. It's just I'm working with <clears throat> more weight than I'm used to. And uh, that can actually lead to further development. We have this habit of wanting things to be smooth and easy, but that isn't necessarily the best thing for us. Sometimes running into difficulty is, uh, is what makes us who we are, is what makes us value the practice, what leads us to be able to handle things better. It's like skiing. If you always go down the bunny slope, you're not going to ever be able to go down the, the diamond run. <clears throat> if you're not falling down every now and then, you're probably not pushing yourself enough. Of course, we don't have to go looking for problems. 
they seem to come to us. But when they do, it's good to keep that in mind. <clears throat> a lot of things that we see as problems are gifts. And they're not really problems if we can't do anything about them. It's a difference between a problem and a circumstance. For running into pain in the, the legs or anxiety we're feeling in our stomach or our chest. It's not our job to somehow make it go away. It's our job to unite with it, to become one with it if we can. Often this is the most effective way, although <clears throat> no guarantees. Then he goes on, Please do not misunderstand me. It is not that knowledge and experience are to be avoided and condemned. Rather, knowledge and experience are to be valued, but we need to gain control of their use. If we leave them to ramble haphazardly through our heads, sowing worries and agitation, then they become a burden to us, a vexation and an obstacle. Some people spend all night worrying. Others put away their thoughts and sleep soundly. We need to cultivate the art of putting aside our memories, our concerns, and our intellectual knowledge. <clears throat> and it is an art. It is something that we do learn to do over time. <clears throat> and now, finally, he gets to the first verse of the poem, which reads, Too much knowledge leads to overactivity. Better to calm the mind. The more you consider, the greater the loss. Better to unify the mind. And then Sheng Yan expands on that. The more you know, the more things can cause you distress. When you know little, you can be simple. In practicing, do not consider what you are doing intellectually or theoretically. All you need to do is the practice. Use it to replace everything else. When you are confused and filled with conceptual fog, you may get depressed and struggle. It is important not to become too judgmental. In fact, any thought is illusory. It is never the thing in itself. Whatever you think is illusory. Illusion is normal. Do not be afraid of the rambling mind, nor condemn it angrily. The important thing is to recognize the state of thought that at that moment inhabits you. Recognizing an illusory thought will usually get rid of it. To have an aversion to thought is to sustain yet another level of illusion. <clears throat> yeah, that's pretty well explained. He goes on, in Chinese, the sentence, better to unify the mind, the final line of that uh, verse, can be translated as guard the one. What is this one? There are two meanings here. The first applies to the mind that is split up, discriminating, filled with illusory intellection. This mind needs to be focused, brought to a single point. Guarding the one means bringing the mind to this single place. And that is done through the method of practice. Training is portrayed in the Chan tradition by the parable of the ox herder. The ox has to be trained to do its job and not wander about over other people's gardens. To begin with, the ox herder must use his whip and apply discipline. Later, the ox is tamed, 
When eating, it eats. When drawing the plow, it pulls. It does the thing in hand undistractedly. This is guarding the one. <clears throat> Once the mind has come to a single point, the term acquires a further meaning. The mind is no longer practicing. It has arrived. The whip can be put away. Three things are happening. One, body and mind are one. Two, internal and external are unified. And three, previous thought and subsequent thought are continuous. And then he goes on to explain, no longer is there an experience of the mind separate from the body, regarding the body as something different. No longer is the observer separated from the observed, and experience flows without time being split into now and then. You could say we're in the eternal present. These three conditions arise together. If one is present, so are the others. Once the mind is unified, so one, the one is guarded. I'm sure that those of you who have participated in several retreats have had some experience of this. Is it not so? <clears throat> Even if the oneness is not complete, we nevertheless we get a taste of it as our practice deepens. Sometimes just for a moment, just for a flash. But there it is. It's real. Then he goes on to the next uh, verse. Excessive thinking weakens the will. The more you know, the more your mind is confused. A confused mind gives rise to vexation. The weakened will obstructs the Tao. This word vexation that Cheng Yin uses uh, quite often is, uh, I believe, a translation of dukkha, of suffering. It's a good, it's a good translation. so many ways that dukkha can be translated suffering pain I remember being told that uh, the word the image for the word is a, a cartwheel where the axle isn't really in the center so it's kind of lumpy uh, and that's the way <clears throat> life seems disjointed difficult as Roche as uh, Bowden Roshi says like hard butter on soft bread when the mind is confused, when we're separated, that gives rise to vexation. It's the cause of vexation. <clears throat> Sheng Yan goes on, Again, do not fall into the mistaken belief that Chan is anti-intellectual. I myself, that is Sheng Yan, have persevered in scholarly studies and looked into theories and explanations, and so have many of you. These lines refer to the inappropriateness of thinking in the context of practice. Sometimes somebody comes to me with an answer to a koan. I may ask where he got it from. <clears throat> Sometimes it obviously comes from a book. The answer has been a consequence of knowledge, of thinking. It is not an answer arising from a mind free of illusion. This is not wisdom. If you rely on books or theories or other people's descriptions, you can never solve a koan. The wisdom of the book is not the wisdom of seeing. If you deliberate, you are far from the mark. If you are far from the mark, you are confused, and there will be vexation. If 
there is intellectual doubt, there is only faulty awakening. <clears throat> Again, reason why it's so good to have a teacher, if you do think you've understood something, it really helps to have someone you can you can go to. Okay, moving into day two, this is his early morning talk uh, <clears throat> at 4.15 a.m., so they're starting a little earlier than we. He says, I have three words for the day. These words are isolation, non-dependence, and non-attachment. The purpose of these words is to give you a focus for attention within your practice, an awareness from moment to moment, whether in sitting or in relation to the group while you are working or eating. Isolation means keeping yourself separate from the environment and from others. Isolation is an attitude of practice. Even though you are sitting and working with others, let it be as if you were the only one here, as if there were only one sitting place in the meditation hall in the whole building. It is as if, as if you are alone, a solitary practitioner in the mountains. It is important sometimes to withdraw and to be solitary, to be isolated and separate. Usually, we are in constant interaction with the environment, our everyday worlds. We are disturbed by the ongoing going concerns of the world, the news bulletins, the politics of the capital, new taxes, old commitments. All this involvement causes us to lose touch with our basic being. We get filled with the noise of the world. If you isolate yourself in practice from past and from future, just being present, then you can see your self-nature more easily without interferences. As you go into this, you may eventually isolate yourself from previous thought and again from subsequent thought. As you withdraw from your own thoughts, you begin to discover what the independent self, the unconditioned, is. <clears throat> By non-dependence, I mean not being concerned with what others are thinking, doing, or saying. Most of our lives are spent in some sort of adjustment to other people who we want to influence in some way. Maybe we want to please somebody, or we feel obliged in some way, or we owe somebody a favor, or we want to reject or harm somebody. We are driven by our involvement with others and cannot let it go. This is dependency. When we let ourselves be ourselves, we are not involved with others. We may still be concerned about people, but are not dependent on their thoughts attitudes and opinions. This is such a big one. remember uh, reading a book by um, Richard Feynman, uh, the physicist, the brilliant physicist. It's entitled, What Do You Care What Other People Think? <clears throat> That's non-dependence. It's freedom, really. We obviously need to <clears throat> hold ourselves to some standard, need to examine our behavior, 
not cause harm, but to worry about what other people think about us is unfortunate. Um, it's common, understandable, but <clears throat> unnecessary. He says, even here on retreat, with the rules of silence and such, where it would seem easy to be free of dependency, you may not find it so. You may be aware of others' attitudes. You may develop feelings of attraction or repulsion towards another. You may be concerned whether I am thinking well or unfavorably about you. You are not independent in your inner self. You are still bound by habits of dependence, which you are throwing out around you as you sit or as you work. If this is the case, notice it. Separate yourself. Find a mind that is not dependent on others. Even if you are afraid of loneliness, you need to experiment with this to make progress. That's, that's, I'm, I'm <clears throat> glad he, he brings this up. There are a lot of people for whom uh, getting into real practice and really letting things drop triggers a reaction of loneliness. It's scary. It's so unfamiliar. As wonderful as it can be, we don't take to it immediately. <clears throat> it's so helpful not to be concerned about what others think about us. You see it sometimes as a monitor in, when we're <laughs> in the zendo, physically doing sashin. The monitor will walk around through the zendo and uh, every now and then you'll see somebody, you can sort of realize that they're watching you out of the corner of their eyes. Uh, it may just be nervousness about the stick or more likely concern about whether you're looking at them and evaluate them, evaluating them. But if you, if you have that tendency yourself, if you find yourself doing that, just stop it. You know, it's, not, it's definitely not helpful. Uh, <clears throat> you're safe. The monitor is there to take care of you don't need to keep an eye on him, especially with Sashin's now. No one is ever struck with the stick without their agreeing to it. Um, there's always a warning tap. I think in Japan sometimes the stick is used with no warning, and uh, as Roshi has said, it can be used punitively. Um, I don't think that's helpful. <clears throat> Maybe for a certain kind of person, but even then... Uh, seems like we're reinforcing the wrong uh, qualities. He says, you need to train yourself so that at any time, at any moment you choose, you can free yourself inwardly from your world, from others, from the past, from the future, from the previous thought, and the next thought. That is to find freedom. Yet if you then think you are free and have some wisdom, this is not so. You should not be attached to solitude or to the experiences of relative freedom. When you are neither attached to independence nor to company, then wisdom will manifest. It can be exhilarating when you get into that state, uh, the state that John Tarrant was talking about, stepping through the gate in the mind into that place of silence. <clears throat> But it's not awakening, and it's not going to last. It's a condition. It's a state. It's wonderful. And it has an effect over time. It's like walking through the mist. We become wet. And it's out of that stillness that insight can come. 
But that's not up to us. That's not something that we can manufacture. What we can do is drop distractions, drop thoughts, leave things alone, not concern ourselves with things that don't, that aren't our business. It says, isolation and independence constitute non-attachment. It's the final of his three things. The isolation, non-dependence, and non-attachment. <clears throat> so the first two constitute non-attachment. I mean non-attachment to yourself, to the devices by which you make yourself safe. When you go beyond this illusory safety, you will find freedom and wisdom, and from wisdom, as you look at the world, comes compassion. When we're no longer protecting ourselves from others, we're no longer seeing obstacles outside ourselves, no longer worrying about the future, then our heart can open. Then we can truly be of use to others. We can listen to others. Maybe one of the greatest ways of helping anyone <clears throat> for them just to be heard. This is a quality that we cultivate in Zen practice. It doesn't come by grasping anything. It comes by letting go. It doesn't come by tensing up. It comes by relaxing into the practice. <clears throat> Well, I see we're at a good place to stop. Time is right, so we'll stop now and recite the four vows. <clears throat>